The History of the Supernatural in All Ages and Nations, Volume 1, by William Hallett. Read by Graham Dunlop. Audio editing by Darren Grimes. Preface. The author of this work intends by the supernatural the operation of those higher and more recondite laws of God, with which being yet but most imperfectly acquainted, we either denominate their effects miraculous, or shutting our eyes firmly, deny their existence altogether. So far from holding that what are called miracles are interruptions or violations of the course of nature, he regards them only as the results of spiritual laws, which in their occasional action subdue, suspend, or neutralize the less powerful physical laws, just as a stronger chemical affinity subdues a weaker one, producing new combinations, but combinations strictly in accordance with the collective laws of the universe, whether understood or not yet understood by us. At a time when so many objections are raised to portions of the scripture narrative, which unsettle men's minds and haunt them with miserable forebodings, the author has thought it of the highest importance to bring into a comprehensive view the statements of the most eminent historians and philosophers of all ages and nations on the manifestations of those spiritual agencies amongst them, which we, for want of further knowledge, term supernatural. It will be seen that he has assembled a mass of evidence from every age and people, even down to our own times, as recorded by their greatest and most accredited authors, so overwhelming that we are thereby reduced to this dilemma, either to reject this universal evidence, by which we inevitably reduce all history to a gigantic fiction and destroy every appeal to its decision on every question whatever, or to accept it, in which case we find ourselves standing face to face with the principle of the most authoritative character for the solution of spiritual enigmas and the stemming of the fatal progress of infidelity. What is more, to the history of the total past, the author brings the evidence of a large body of intelligent persons in nearly every country of Europe, as well as in America, where they count by millions who confirm the verdict of all history on this point by their own familiar experience. The author adds his own conclusions from a practical examination of these higher phenomena through a course of seven years. Thus, all past history being supported by a vast present experience, the author deems the candid consideration of this aggregate of historic evidence as the highest duty of the day for all who regard the most sacred hopes and the moral progress of humanity. If this evidence be found conclusive, and it cannot be found otherwise except at the cost of all historic verity, then it presents an impassable barrier to the ultimate and dreary object of skepticism, and renders easy the acceptance of the marvelous events of the sacred scriptures. Once admitted as historic and present truth, it furnishes of necessity the only conceivable antidote to the great psychological malady of the time. For nothing can ever effectually arrest the now age-long conflict of words and opinions but the blunt and impassable terminus of fact. Theologic critics in England, when they have stated that everything is subject to law, think they have exploded all miracle as if miracle were not itself a law. These gentlemen presume that they know all the laws of God or of nature, as they prefer to call the infinite power, when they are seeing every day still new laws discovered. A miraculum, or 
thing to be wondered at is only such from our ignorance. And what must be the ignorance of sound theology in England when we see our teachers of divinity, who have been disciplined and educated in the highest national schools, reduced to the necessity of huckstering the sweepings of the studies of German professors and seizing as valuable prizes on their old broken pipes and cast-off boots. It is no disparagement of the essays and reviews or of Bishop Collinso's books to say that there is not a single new argument or discovery in them, because it is impossible to produce such. The Germans have wagon loads of this species of criticism which leave all such brochures as these the most threadbare of commonplaces. Let us have free biblical criticism by all means, but let us at least have something new. Have our theologians only just heard the alarum of this biblical warfare, which began with Ludovicus Capellus nearly 250 years ago? Are they ignorant that there is not a difficulty in the chronology, the statistics, the paleology, the metaphysics, or historical statements of the Bible? which has not been seized upon, hunted down, turned over on all sides and turned inside out, probed, analyzed, and tested in all imaginable ways by a long line of the acutest mathematicians, logicians and linguists, orientalists and sharp-fanged critics from Capellus to Schleiermacher and Bunsen, from our own Hobbes and Tyndall, to the miracle-scouting Hume from Spinoza to what the Germans call their great generalissimo of unbelief, Strauss, to say nothing of our own biblical critics from Kennicott to Hartwell, Horn, nor of Michaelis, Griesbach, Samler, Bengel, Tholuck, Neander, Kurtz, Hengsterberg, Haverneck, Ewald, DeWitt, Bleak, Kuenen, more or less favorable to Revelation, the German metaphysicians Kant, Fichte, Hegel, and the rest have come into the aid of the long line of skeptical combatants and trodden the arena of biblical combat into a mirror of destruction to every novelty in this department. And what is the result? Nobody doubts that there are weak places in the ancient narrative of the Bible. Nobody supposes that it can be otherwise with the oldest book in the world whose story ascends many thousand years beyond all written history. Nobody can be ignorant after so long and careful a comparison of statement and counterstatement that the fabric of scriptural history stands like some ancient palace, time-worn but sound in substance. Its finials may be weather-beaten, its carvings here and there may have lost their sharpness, ignorant hands may have interpolated some barbarisms of sculpture, some discordant window lights, but it stands grand and harmonious as a whole, sound and deep in its foundations and unshakable in its strength. And as it regards the miraculous in the Bible, the author, in his work on Germany in 1842, wrote this passage. Take away the miraculous portion of the Jewish history, and you take away the whole, for it is built entirely on a miraculous foundation. Take away that and you connect its great actors, yes, Christ himself, with madmen and impostors. There is no halfway house on this path, and therefore the Catholics find sufficient occasion to say that Protestantism is but a slippery highway to deism. The German philosophers are so conscious of this that they tell us the English will become as skeptical when they become as philosophical. 
It has then taken us 20 years to become not philosophical, but merely to arrive at the ability to rake over the dust heaps of the German rationalists. To such a condition had this spirit of negation reduced these professors at that time that Schelling was lecturing against it and said, There comes now from this side danger to philosophy itself. Already stand those prepared who profess only to aim at a particular philosophy, but at bottom mean all philosophy, and in their hearts say, There shall be no more philosophy at all. And now, as to the supernatural? The answer lies in these volumes. If you could crush it in the Bible, there remains yet a little task for you. You must crush it in the whole universe. And to do that, you must crush the universe with it, for it exists everywhere, and its roots are in the foundation of all things. Chapter 1. An Apology for Faith in the 19th Century Names of great men who have held faith in the supernatural. Present Principles, the residuum of the atheistic school of the French Revolution. Men of plain sense, the best witnesses for facts. St. Paul's high estimate of faith. Sir Thomas Brown's faith in the miraculous. The Reverend Dr. Maitland's ridicule of the materialism of Faraday, etc. His work on superstition and science. The necessity of maintaining a spirit of faith. In my papers in the Spiritual Telegraph on the wonderful story of the prophets of the Savines, I endeavored to demonstrate that though there may be, from time to time, more extraordinary manifestations of the influence of the spiritual world operating on the incarnated world, the principle is universal and belonging to all times and nations. As essentially a part of God's economy in his education of the human race as the rising and setting of the sun. Since writing that, every day has further convinced me of this great fact thus asserted. There is no part of human history or human literature which does not abound in the plainest demonstrations of this influence. We find it in almost every book we open. We have it in the scriptures from the first page to the last, from the creation to Christ, a period of 4,000 years. We have it in all the contemporary literature, in the Grecian, the Roman, the Egyptian, the Persian, the Indian, and the Arabian. It glows in the Zendavesta that stands mountain high in the Vedas. Buddha lives in it, in divine reverie. Brahma proclaims it in his avatars. It is the very lifeblood of the Scandinavian Eddas. There, all succeeds to the will, because the Odrerer have now descended to the old holy earth. If we go into nations that never had a literature, this eternal truth is walking there in all its strength. The American Indians, north and south, had it ages before the white man arrived. The red men felt the inspirations of the great spirit in their forests and spoke as inspired by it at their councils. They declared that the angels of the great spirit walked as friends among their ancestors. The Mexicans prophesied of a people coming in a ship from the east to take from them their long-possessed sovereignty. The Australian natives refused to go out at night because then they think the powers of darkness are in the ascendant. The Obi of the Africans speak the same language. The conviction of the permanent contiguity of the spiritual presses on the earth walls of humanity wherever spirit lives. 
Passing from the Bible to the book containing the finest writings next to the Bible, the Apocrypha, we find the same great principle taking its easy, natural stand as a perpetual agent in human history. Josephus takes it up with the same sober assurance as he takes up his pen. We have the miraculous deeds of the Maccabees. We have the grand apparition of the fiery horse and horsemen and the radiant youths who punished the intrusion of Heliodorus into the temple of Jerusalem. We have the inspired harbinger of woe and the dread apparitions and prodigies of the siege of the sacred city. The fathers of the church received the miraculous as part of their gospel heritage. The Christian church, Roman, Grecian, and Waldenesian never for a moment doubted the supernatural demonstrations of their religion. Every page of their several histories is freighted with the miraculous. Let anyone read the story of the Greek church and of the ancient and never secularized Church of the Waldenses. Let anyone read the two Massey volumes of the Reverend Alban Butler of the History of the Saints and the four volumes of Newman's History of the English Saints and add to them the Legends of the Saints by Mrs. Jameson. In these, the perpetual stream of miracle flows without a ruffle of doubt. We have pious men and pious women in all ages curing diseases, quenching the violence of fires, walking on waters, raising the dead, as matters belonging to the life and business of Christianity. Has Rome, for secular purposes, invented or falsified some of these things? Undoubtedly. But what then of the Waldenses, who had no worldly purpose? And are we to believe that most holy men of all ages, men who sought no earthly advantages of glory and shunned no suffering or shame, are combined in a monstrous lie which every age could confute? In this respect, Rome only goes with every other church and every other record. And finally, we have this doctrine of spiritual protrusion maintained by the great leaders of Protestantism, by Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, Martin, Buer, Erasmus, Knox, by some of the great bishops of the Anglican Church, by the Church itself in the collect of St. Michael and all angels, and in various other portions of the Book of Common Prayer, by the founders of every school of dissent, by foreign teachers and philosophers, Oberlin, Baum, Swedenborg, Zehok, Laviter, Stilling, Kerner, etc., and by the most eminent of the great modern poets and philosophers, Milton, Bacon, Boyle, Dante, Woodsworth, Byron, Shelley, etc. Thus then, all times and regions, and greatly gifted and inspired men, held firmly in their several ages and places, by the golden chain of the supernatural, which we now too grasp. It is the lex magna, the great dogma of the universe. It is that Voice of God, close whispering within, wretch, this is villainy and this is sin. Of Homer, which rebels impatiently against the sophism which would banish ethereal companionship from this material sphere. True, there have been in many ages a sprinkling of seducees, a little knot of spiritually crippled men, as there have been bodily crippled ones. But the grand total of the healthy would have felt the ever unrelaxed grasp of life from the invisible that surrounds us. It is only since Hobbes and Tyndall and Hume and their continental disciples, the Illuminati of Germany and the Encyclopedists of France, 
whose faith in no faith culminated in the French Revolution, that the torpedo touch of seduceism has been able to enter into education and to paralyze the science, theology, and literature of an age. Can this endure? Impossible. The might of all nature, the momentum of all man's history is against it. As well might we expect an eclipse to become permanent, the cholera or the plague to rage forever. The natural condition of humanity is alliance with the spiritual. The anti-spiritual is but an epidemic, a disease. Come then, let us see the truth in the face of nature and confirm our souls in its universality. Let us stroll through the wide cornfields of the supernatural, or, in modern phrase, of spiritualism. Let us lift our eyes and see that they are white for harvest. There are immensities of grain garnered in those barns, the libraries, that those who will may thresh out. There are two standing crops, some green, some yet milky in the ear, some golden for the sickle, that we may wander amongst, and as we draw the awned ears through our hands may hear the larks, the poets of all ages caroling above our heads, hear Hesiod singing of Ariel spirits by great Jove designed to be on earth the guardians of mankind. And hear Homer tell us that, in similitude of strangers, oft the gods, who can with ease all shapes assume, repair to populous cities. We will sit by reedy brooks in the sunshine whilst the embattled wheat rustles in our ears, and Socrates shall bid us, as he did Phaedo, not to, to be inferior to swans in respect to divination who, when they needs must die, though they have been used to sing before, sing more now than ever, rejoicing that they are about to depart to that deity whose servants they are. But men, through their own fear of death, belie the swans too, and say that they, lamenting their death, sing their last song through grief. And they do not consider that no birds sings when it is hungry or cold, or is afflicted with any other pain. Not even the nightingale or swallow or the hoopoes, which they say sing lamenting through grief. But neither do these birds appear to me to sing through sorrow, nor yet do swans, but in my opinion, belonging to Apollo, they are prophetic, and perceiving the blessings of Hades, they sing and rejoice on that day more excellently than any other time. I too consider myself to be a fellow servant of the swans and sacred to the same God, and I have received the power of divination from our common master, no less than they, and I do not depart from this life with less spirit than they. We will hear Plato in his Euthyphron, speaking of the anti-spiritualists of his day. Me too, when I say anything in the public assembly concerning divine things, and predict to them what is going to happen, they ridicule as mad. And although nothing that I have predicted has not turned out to be true, yet they envy all such men as we are. However, we ought not to heed them, but pursue our own course. We will stand with Ruth amid the alien corn of other lands, and the good Boaz of the field, the master spirit of the world, shall bid his young men drop us handfuls as they reap. In these alien yet kindred fields, Dante shall give us marvelous passages from his Vita Nuova. Ariosto shall enchant us with miracles in woods and deserts, and Boccaccio 
mingle the marvelous with stories of chivalrous and city life. Schiller, and even the world man goeth, shall open glimpses into the swarming regions of those who are not dead but gone before. We will have a day with Fenelon and Pascal in the monastic glades and amid the cloisters of old France. For the present, however, let us say a few words on the difficulties of faith to men built up, like enclosed knights and nuns of old in the hollow walls of one-eyed education. In the lesser work of the Townsend on mesmerism, we find the following anecdote. A doctor of Antwerp was allowed at a seance to impose his own tests, the object of the seance being to demonstrate vision by abnormal means. He said beforehand, if the sonambulist tells me what is in my pocket, I will believe. The patient, having entered into somnambulism, was asked by him the question, What is in my pocket? She immediately replied, A case of lancets. It is true, said the doctor, somewhat startled, but the young lady may know that I am of the medical profession, and that I am likely to carry lancets, and this may be a guess, but if she will tell me the number of the lancets in the case, I will believe. The number of lancets was told. The skeptic still said, I cannot yet believe. But if the form of the case is accurately described, I must yield to conviction. The form of the case was accurately described. This certainly is very singular, said the doctor. Very indeed. But still I cannot believe. But if the young lady can tell me the color of the velvet that lines the case that contains the lancets, I really must believe. The question being put, the young lady directly said, The color is dark blue. The doctor allowed that she was right. Yet he went away repeating, very curious, still, yet I cannot believe. Nor could the doctor have believed had he received an amount of evidence as large as the Cathedral of Antwerp. How can a stone move? How can a petrified man believe? And the scientific, as a class, are petrified by their education and the unspiritual principles of the last generation. These principles are the residuum of the atheistic and materialistic school of the French Revolution. The atheism is disavowed, but the disbelieving leaven remains, and will long remain. It will cling to the scientific like a death pall, and totally disqualify them for independent research into the internal nature of man, and of his properties and prospects as an immortal being. This education has sealed up their spiritual eye, and left them only their physical one. They are as utterly disqualified for psychological research as a blind man for physical research. They are greatly to be pitied, for they are in a wretchedly maimed and deplorable condition. It is not from them that we have to hope for any great discoveries in mind. Let us only take care that they do not throw their loads of professional clay, their refuse of human dissections, on the subjects of inquiry. By more perfect and unpetrified natures, such natures, as I have stated, existed in all times, down to the paralysis which fell on men in the last age. How different is the tone, as I shall hereafter show, in almost all the great writers of the period just preceding. What a different creed is promulgated by Sir Thomas Brown, who lived in the 17th century. In his Religio Medici, he says, We do surely owe the discovery of many secrets to the discovery of good and bad angels. I can never pass that sentence of Paracelsus without an asterisk of admiration. 
Our good angels reveal many things to those who seek into the works of nature. I do not think that many mysteries ascribed to our own inventions have been the courteous revelations of spirits. For those noble essences in heaven bear a friendly regard to their fellow nature on earth. And I therefore believe that those many prodigies and ominous prognostics, which forerun the ruin of states, princes, and private persons, are the charitable premonitions of good angels, which more careless inquirers term but the effects of chance and nature. And alluding to the school of Hobbes, which was beginning to cast its dark fog on the hitherto bright faith of men, he adds, The severe school shall never laugh me out of the philosophy of Hermes, that this visible world is but a picture of the invisible, wherein, as in a portrait, things are not truly but in equivocal shapes, and as they are counterfeit some real substance in that invisible fabric. How different to the clever men of our time. And yet, Sir Thomas was deemed one of the acutest intellects of his era. For scientific and literary men stick by the death creed of Hobbes, Diderot, and Co., and yet, not knowing it, cannot believe any great new spiritual fact on any amount of evidence. The same petrified class of people in Christ's time were only the more enraged by accumulated evidence. When at length they could not disbelieve Christ any longer, they determined to kill him. Though they saw that his miracles were all benefactions, even to the raising of the dead, they were only the more irritated by that. Instead of melting their petrifaction, the blaze of evidence made them feel their stony bondage without being able to break it, and they were the more pinched and cramped by their educational prejudices. In their pangs, nature expanding their perceptions, but not their hearts, and habit and pride still compressing them with a deadly clasp, they grew furious and cried no longer that Christ was an impostor and deceiver, but that he did good things, and that if they let him go, the whole world would go after him. They therefore seized him and put him to death. This is an awful picture of the eternal nature of professional pride and materialistic education. And it is the precise picture of the scientific and professional of today as it was of the same class in Christ's time. Not many wise, not many learned, not many great of this world believed on him. The Pharisees and high priests asked, Which of the rulers and Pharisees have believed in these things? So now, as then, it is from the unprejudiced, and often from the uneducated, that the capacity for receiving new truths, on simple and palpable evidence is to be expected. The general recipients of fresh facts are men and women accustomed to use their own eyes, and not the spectacles of so-called learned men and learned theories. In California and Australia, they were not the geologists who could find the gold, but the plain, simple men who sought it not by talk of strata and primaries and tertiaries, Paleozoic and Silurian ages, but by just simply digging after it. Long before Sir Roderick Murchison had predicted gold in Australia, or Count Streslecki and the Reverend W.B. Clark had found it there, the convicts cutting the road from Sydney through the Blue Mountains had gathered in it quantities. See my Two Years in Victoria, Volume 2, page 254. Long had the shepherds of Victoria collected and brought down nuggets to sell in Melbourne. 
or no one believed their story, but insisted that these nuggets had been introduced from some other country. But strangest of all is the fact stated by Mr. Davison in his elaborate work, Discovery and Geognosy of Gold Deposits in Australia, that Mr. Stutchbury, who, on the recommendation of Sir Roderick Murchison, was sent out by our government to Australia as the most suitable geologist to find gold, if there were any, could not find a trace. And in 1851, when the colonial secretary announced to Mr. Stutchbury that Hargraves, an uneducated digger, had found a gold field in the neighborhood of Bathurst, that gentleman officially replied that he had for some time been exploring that very quarter and could see no evidence whatever of a precious metal in the western districts. Such were the results of science. But the untheorized men knew a spade and a pick, and they knew gold when they saw it, and so bagged the metal, whilst the learned bagged only a deal of vaporing talk about chloritic schist and talcose rocks and Permian deposits. The parallel holds good in psychological gold digging. They must be men with all their senses unsinged, with all their limbs perfect and healthy, and their eyes and minds free as God and nature made them, to seek and find truth. No half-men, no paralytics, who have lost the use of one side, and that the best side of their intellectual frames, through the vicious habits of an educational process, will ever become the pioneers of knowledge of the yet undiscovered regions of human nature. As soon might you pit a Chinese lady with all her toes crumpled up to run against a full-blood Arabian for the derby. Let us hope for a more rational education of professional men, when nature and observation shall take the place of theory and the pride of theory. Till then we must go on without them. We cannot wait of men who, as Woodsworth says, have been suckled in a pagan creed outworn. The great poet tells us that the Greeks felt a spiritual presence at times misconceived, but still a high dependence, a divine, bounty and government that filled their hearts with joy and gratitude and peace and love. And he asks, Shall men for whom our age unbaffled powers of vision hath prepared to explore the world without and world within be joyless as the blind, ambitious souls, whom earth at this late season hath produced, to regulate the moving spheres and weigh the planets in the hollow of their hand? And they who rather dive than soar, whose pains have solved the elements, or analyzed? The thinking principle, shall they, in fact, prove a degenerate race? And what avails renown, if their presumption makes them such? Or there is laughter at their work in heaven? Inquire of ancient wisdom, go demand of mighty nature, t'was ever meant, that we should pry far off, yet be unraised, that we should pour and dwindle as we pour. These pourers and dwindlers who think our vital frame so fearfully devised, and the dread soul within it, should exist only to be examined, pondered, searched, probed, vexed, and criticized. These microscopic men, who will have no evidence of things which they cannot take up with their thumb and fingers, atoms which they can carve and pry amongst, are continually accusing us of credulity, as of something mean and imbecile. But what is this credulity? 
A credulity based on evidence is hardly credulity. But what is the credulity which the spiritualists indulge in? Will anyone tell us wherein it differs from the credulity of those who saw the miracles of Christ, those miracles which so offended the scribes and Pharisees? Wherein does it differ from the credulity of Paul, who believed he saw miraculous light on his way to Damascus and heard commands from heaven? Do these very wise men know that it is to this species of credulity that both Christ and Paul attribute the very highest and noblest properties? O ye of little faith, was the continual cry of the Savior. Faith he pronounced to be the sublimest and most meritorious quality of the soul. To faith in messages from the inner world he awarded salvation. Whosoever believeth in me shall have everlasting life. If ye have but faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, etc. Paul was continually exalting the nature and character of faith. By him all that believe are justified from all things from which they could not be justified by the works of the law. Acts 13. Believe and ye shall be saved. Acts 16. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. Romans 1. The glory and greatness of Abraham, for which God made him the father of the faithful and the ancestor of Christ, was this faith or credulity. And he had this credulity so enormously that when he was promised by a spiritual messenger at a hundred years old and his wife far past the age of childbearing, that he should have a son. He staggered not, and he believed not according to nature, but heartily contrary to nature, and gave glory to God. Nay, more, he had such a pitch of credulity that he was ready, at a spiritual command, to kill his own son, a credulity which, in this age, would have made him a laughing stock, and would have put him in jeopardy of the gallows. Yet God deemed this vast credulity not merely sensible and prudent, but so sensible, so prudent, so noble, that it was entered into God's book of record as the highest and most substantial righteousness. So far from credulity, that is, the quality of mind termed by our learned men credulity, being deemed imbecile by the author of all minds, he has set upon it his stamp of divinest approval. In his view, it is the sublimest action of the soul, the profoundest philosophy, if anyone would comprehend the grandeur and estimation of faith, or, as the philosophers term it, credulity, let him read the eleventh chapter of St. Paul's Epistle to the Hebrews, in which he reviews the history of the world from Adam to the coming of Christ, and directly attributes all the marvels of the annals of the patriarchs and prophets down to the accomplishment of the Messiahship, to faith, faith which subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, made weakness strong, and raised the very dead. Faith, says St. Paul, by which only we can understand that the world was framed by the word of God. That is the despised quality of faith, or belief in evidence of superhuman things. Nay, we are told by our Savior himself in the case of Thomas, that blessed are they who saw not and yet believed. And that too is the opinion of Sir Thomas Brown, already quoted. Some believe the better for seeing Christ's sepulchre, and when they have seen the Red Sea, doubt not the miracle. 
Now, contrarily, I bless myself that I live not in the day of miracles, that I never saw Christ or his disciples. I would not have been one of the Israelites that passed the Red Sea, nor one of Christ's patients on whom he wrought his miracles. Then had my faith been thrust upon me, nor shall I enjoy the greater blessings pronounced to all who saw not and yet believed. Religio Medici They who then are ready to accept the sole testimony of their own senses, or of their sane and honest neighbors, of things however extraordinary, are not in Christ's opinion, nor in that of Sir Thomas Brown, fools and dupes, but blessed. Perhaps those who think themselves very wise in scorning all evidence that does not suit them may be a little surprised at the amazing value set upon this very credulity by the highest authority as a quality that requires a certain soundness of heart and honesty of purpose and courage of intellect, a quality which cannot be obtained except by the exercise of the very highest elements of human nature. And equal must there be surprised at the very different estimation in the gospel of another class of men, in whom God made foolish the wisdom of this world, because they sought it not by faith, but, as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling block. Romans 9. It would do some people a great deal of good to read that admirable little book of only 89 pages called Superstition and Science by the Reverend R.S. Maitland, D.D. and F.S.A., in which, with a rare mixture of acute logic and fine irony, he deals with certain philosophers, the Faradays, Brewsters, and the like. Speaking of superstition, he says, Few persons, I suppose, are really much the worse in mind, body, or estate for being thought superstitious by their neighbors. As to the matter of fact, every man, except those, if there be any such, who have renounced all belief in everything, is placed somewhere in the scale of credulity, and is looked up to as too high, and down upon as too low, by those who are beneath or above him in faith, just as he is in the matter of learning and money. If we hear that a man is learned, we cannot deny it, for who has not learned something? But it makes a great difference whether the testimony comes from his university or a village alehouse. If he be rich, whether his neighbors and competitors inhabit Finland or Grovenor Square. And with regard to superstition, one may commonly judge as to the meaning of the word in any particular case, from the general style and character of him who uses it. If a philosopher is excited and sets up a shout over the solution of a difficulty, or the detection of a fraud, and glorifies it as a triumph over superstition, we may suspect we must not set it down for certain, but we may say, I say, suspect, that he is not only glad to get rid of something which he did not wish to believe, but that he means directly to impunge something else, which he cannot contrive to disbelieve. The panic haste in which a vulgar dread of being thought superstitious, or being driven to believe something disagreeable, calls on science and philosophy to come to the rescue. The prostration in which frightened ignorance waits to receive the lesson, which it is to turn into nonsense by parrot repetition. The silent awe with which it listens to profane and vain babblings, and oppositions of science, falsely so-called. All this is miserably ridiculous. 
It is something which cannot be estimated or even imagined by those who, without taking the trouble to look into the facts and to use the common sense which God has given them, are content to sit down calm and silent under the shameful conviction that they are not scientific and must pretend to have an opinion, but must swallow whatever pretenders in philosophy may condescend to tell them. Equally excellent is what Dr. Maitland says of credulity, namely that to believe human testimony is as much a part of our nature as to require food, and that the very men who affect to believe as little as possible go on for threescore years and ten, believing from hour to hour and from year to year. What people tell them on testimony, which they cannot have tested and which had they a motive for it, they would reject on mere hearsay. I trust that this work will do much to set the world right on these questions, that it will teach people that all attacks on faith under the pseudonym of credulity do not indicate a philosophical but a shallow mind, incapable or unwilling to determine the true limits of evidence, and to give a rational concession to the powers of the unsophisticated human intellect that so far from regarding the deity of mere scientific or literary men on questions of a higher nature than mere physics as decisive, the mistakes and weaknesses in regard to the supernatural of such men as Faraday, Brewster, Dickens, Dr. Elliston, the martyr of mesmerism turned persecutor of spiritualism, will do much more to cure implicit reliance on men wandering out of the proper provinces that they will come to regard such men with all honor and respect, as far as they confine themselves to what they really have studied, but at the same time to regard them as men suffering under the chronic paralysis of faith left on Europe by the French Revolution, that in fact all that part of their minds which regards the science of pneumatology is dead and incapable of any vital process, that so far as they are concerned, all future discoveries in the region of one more subtle life and essence is at an end. They must be suffered to die out, as the dried-up stalks and stubble of a past season, and the energies of a new and more equally developed order of minds must be relied on for the prosecution of knowledge, more important than even railroads and telegraphs, because embracing the eternities of nature and destiny, instead of allowing faith to be trodden underfoot under the nickname of credulity, men will become conscious of its truly august character, of its gospel greatness. At the same time that they are careful, whilst fixing their eyes on the fair mountains of speculation and the distance, they will also be careful to follow the highways of evidence as they proceed. In such minds, nicknames will cease to possess any influence. In spirit inquiries, the term spirit rapping will not be regarded as wit, much less as argument, any more than it would be deemed clever to call Christians water dippers because they practice baptism. Yet there is a large class of the vulgar who, when they have pronounced the word spirit rapping, think they have exploded spirit evidence. These are of the earth earthy animal existences in the words of john keats which graze the mountain tops with faces prone in the meantime let us say with jung stilling in his sienen os dem geisterreich that is whether we are reckoned fools and ignoramuses or set down as mad fanatics it is all one 
Our Lord and Master himself was pronounced such. Let us go out to him and bear his shame. Chapter 2 Spiritualists Before the American Development Profound general ignorance of the history of spiritualism. Spiritualism existed in Germany for a century before appearing in America. Jung Stilling, Kerner, Levater, Eschemeyer, Jolke, Schubert, Werner, Kant, Oberlin, etc., acknowledgers of it. Before them, Wesley, Swedenborg, and others. Life of Jung Stilling, The Vision of Old Eberhard Stilling, Stilling Lives at College by Faith, Stilling's Funds of Providence, He Writes the Nostalgia, Scenes in the Invisible World, etc., Predicts the Death of Levator, His Presentiments of Evil, His Opinion of Mediumship, The Apparition of the Sackbearer, The Apparition Whose Touch Burned, Stilling's Ideas Regarding Spirits, A Defender of Swedenborg, Remarkable Passages in the Shepherd of Hermas, There is Nothing New Under the Sun, Solomon. A man, for want of a better term, is designated a fool when by his opinions he is found alone in the midst of his nation or his age, and if he meet with partisans, real or pretended, so long as their number is small, they share with him the same title and the same disgrace. Vinay's Vital Christianity, page 64. So profound is the ignorance of the great subject of spiritualism, which is but another term for the belief in the supernatural in this age, an influence pervading all ages and all nations, wide as the spread of the sun's light, repeating its operations as incessantly as the return of morning, So thoroughly has the ocean of mere mundane affairs and affections submerged us in its waves, that if presented with a new phase of a most ancient and indestructible power, we stand astonished before it as something hitherto unheard of. If our knowledge reaches yesterday, it is absolutely at fault in the day before. This has never been more conspicuous than in the estimation of American spiritualism in this country because it has assumed a novel shape, that of moving physical objects, and has introduced spirits speaking through the means of an alphabet, rapping, drawing, and writing either through the hand of mediums or independently of them. It has almost universally in this country been regarded as an entirely new phenomena. We still continually hear of spiritualism as originating in America within the last ten years. The evidence produced in this volume will show that no view of the matter can be more discreditable to our knowledge of psychology. Nothing can be more self-evident than that American spiritualism is but the last new blossom of a very ancient tree, colored by the atmosphere in which it has been put forth, and somewhat modified in its shape by the pressure of circumstances upon it. In other words, it has burst forth from the old, all-prolific stem to answer the needs of the time. As materialism has made a great advance, the grand old Proteus of truth has assumed a shape expressly adapted to stop its way. As materialism has tinctured all philosophy, spiritualism has spoken out more plainly in resistance of it. The spirit world has come, as it were, a step nearer to our firesides, and by what seemed the happy accident of a child's expression. 
but which undoubtedly was the usual promptings of providence in all times of need. America learned to speak to spirits and to receive replies, though only like Thisbe, through the still sturdy wall of fleshly matter, explaining the mystery of all those knockings and hauntings, those sightings and rustlings, those thrillings through our nerves and awe-overshadowings of the minds of men through many a long age. The sensation which this has created has been in proportion to the instinctively perceived value of this new key to the great old storehouse of spirit treasures. It has shown how much the modern seducism, by its holding up of new obstructions between us and our invisible fatherland, has made such an additional instrument requisite. We must clear away the death wall of doubt and negation, or we must perish. America, by the simple discovery of the telegraphy of rapping and the further developments of mediumship, made intelligible by this discovery, has in truth inaugurated a new era of spiritualism. But it has by no means created or has created within it the power of spiritualism itself. That power is the all-time inheritance of the human race. For about a hundred years before, Germany and Switzerland had their spiritualists developing or believing in phenomena almost in all particulars identical with those of America. If they had not discovered the mode of conversing with spirits by means of rapping and the alphabet, they had been enabled to converse with them by other means. They had spirit vision, spirit writing, knowledge of coming events from the spirit world, and daily direct intercourse with its inhabitants. Preeminent amongst these spiritualists were young Stilling, Kerner, Levator, Eschemeyer, Jolke, Schubert, Werner, Kant. The German portion of France had Oberlin, etc. England, at a little earlier period, had its John Wesley and his disciples, who had full faith in these phenomena, and Sweden, its Swedenborg, perhaps the greatest spirit medium that ever appeared, passing in and out of the spirit world and holding converse with its inhabitants almost at his pleasure. But leaving Wesley and Swedenborg for another notice, I shall now devote my attention to the spiritualists of Germany and Switzerland who flourished from the middle of the 18th century to within less than 20 years of the spiritual outbreak in America, and one of whose most distinguished members, Dr. Kerner, was indeed still living at the time of commencing this work. I shall notice this group of spiritualists here, otherwise out of their course, simply because they will at once deprive the American dispensation of much of its novelty, and clear away thus the gross error of making America within the last ten years the original mother of spiritualism. Johann Young Stilling The life and character of this eminent spiritualist has been made familiar to the English reader through the translation of Mr. Samuel Jackson who has also introduced to us his pneumatology and some other portions of his writings. The story of his early life, as written by himself under the title of Henrik Stilling's Childhood, Youthful Years, and Wanderings, is one of the most charming specimens of embellished biography in any language. It is what Goeth has named his own case, Warhit and Dictum, or Truth and Fiction. The events of the life, he tells us, are real, with some poetic embellishments intended to make a reality appear like a work of imagination. The scenery and the personages which figure in it are delightful, 
we are conducted into a village of Westphalia, where old Eberhard Stilling, a charcoal burner, lives with his wife Margaret and his family. This village, which he calls Tiefenbach, or Deep Brook, stands on each side of such a stream, at the feet of hills covered with beech forests. And old Eberhard spends every week in the neighboring hills, burning charcoal, and goes home every Saturday to return to the woods on Monday morning. Eberhard is a pious old patriarch. He has two sons, one of whom is a mathematical turn, and becomes the steward of a neighboring gentleman. The other, Wilhelm, is lame in his feet and is a tutor. Wilhelm is the father of Heinrich, whose mother is the delicate daughter of an old ejected preacher of the name of Moritz. The mother dies early and leaves Henrik a poetical temperament. The boy is very fond of going with his grandfather into the woods and staying with him in the woodsman's hut covered with sods, watching the old man's labors and listening to his talk. On one occasion, the boy asks him to tell him about his ancestors, for he has heard of heroes, and they all had their ancestors, and were often descended from some great prince. Father Stilling smiled and replied, It would be hard to prove that we were descended from a prince, but that is all the same to me, nor must thou wish it. Thy forefathers were all honest and pious people. There are few princes that can say that. Let this be thy greatest honor in the world that thy grandfather, great-grandfather, and their fathers were all men who, though they had nothing under their command, out of their house, were notwithstanding beloved and honored by all men. None of them married in a dishonorable manner, or transgressed with any female. None of them ever coveted that which was not his, and all died honorably at a very old age. Heinrich rejoiced and said, I shall then find all my forefathers in heaven. Yes, replied his grandfather, that thou wilt. Our family will there bloom and flourish. Heinrich, remember this evening as long as thou liveth, and the world to come we shall be of high nobility. Do not lose this privilege. Our blessings will rest upon thee as long as thou art pious. But if thou become wicked and despise thy parents, we shall not know thee in the next world. Heinrich began to weep and said, Do not fear that, grandfather. I will be religious and rejoice that my name is Stilling. And such examples and conversations as these seemed to have sunk deep into the lad's heart, and Stilling became a steady champion for Christianity and a firm believer in spiritual guidance, and not only in general, but a particular providence. He struggled his way up from the tailor's shop board and the obscurity of village life through the various grades of schoolmaster, merchant's clerk, family tutor, to the university, where he went with only one dollar in his pocket, and without any further visible means of passing an academical career and taking his medical degree. But, says Goeth, who was his fellow student at Strasbourg and became strongly attached to him, the element of his energy was an impregnable faith in God and in an assistance immediately proceeding from him which obviously justified itself in an uninterrupted provision, and an infallible deliverance from every distress and every evil. Young had experienced various instances of this kind in his life, and they had recently been frequently repeated, so that, though he led a frugal life, yet it was without care and with the greatest cheerfulness, and he applied himself most diligently to his studies, although he could not reckon upon any certain subsistence from one quarter of a year to another. I urged him to write his life, and he promised to do so, 
Warheit and Dictum. In urging young Stilling to write his life, Goeth rendered a great service to the cause of vital, genuine Christianity. Not that of mere theory, which has none but a vague metaphysical faith, out which accepts the gospel in all its simplicity and power, accepts it as based on the promises which it contains, that its author will be with his disciples to the end of the world, and that if they thoroughly rely on him, they shall not only receive whatever they ask rightly and reasonably, but it shall be prepared for them even before they ask, because their heavenly Father knoweth what they need. Stilling had accepted the gospel in this bona fide, substantial fashion. He did not exactly say, as Luther was wont in his daring way, to say to God, This, O God, thou hast most positively promised, and if thou dost not fulfill it, I will not believe in thee again. But he had an inward, unshakable assurance that God was leading him towards the work which he meant him to do in the world, and he must leave all the means of carrying out his plans to himself. But it was not exactly what Goeth imagined. He was not without care, and his cheerfulness was not without an understratum of mental anxiety. On the contrary, his faith was often tried to the uttermost. He was often led to the very last moment without the slightest sign of rescue from the deepest perplexity and fear of disgrace from breach of money engagements. For years he was left to struggle through frightful poverty and to be scorned and buffeted and persecuted by those around him. Without this, his faith would have been of little value. His trust in God's promises would have been too cheaply purchased. It was in this depth of excruciating trials that he was taught to feel the eternal arm beneath him. It was when he was about to sink, and the waters of affliction were up to his very lips, that he was saved again and again, and made to understand that his fears were vain. His faith, and not his helper, had been weak. He was never once forsaken, and his life was of the most remarkable and triumphant examples of living by faith. From a poor tailor's son, he rose to be not only a professor of the universities of Marburg and Heidelberg, but a most successful operator for the cure of cataract, and a very popular writer in defense of Christianity. The Grand Duke of Baden became personally attached to him, delighted to have him near him and gave him a handsome stipend to devote himself to this class of literature and to the cure of cataract gratuitously. By these means, Stilling not only restored to sight many hundreds of the blind, but spread over all Germany and into many foreign lands the radiance and joy of his own faith. Mr. Jackson, Stilling's translator, says, untutored in the academic divinity, which had proved insufficient to stem the torrent of increasing infidelity, his expanded mind, after being well established in fundamental truth, was led to the cont Mr. Jackson, Stilling's translator, says, untutored in academic divinity, which has proved insufficient to stem the torrent of increasing infidelity, his expanded mind, after being well established in fundamental truth, was led to the contemplation of subjects which were still much involved in obscurity and which enabled him to present the realities of the invisible world in a new and striking manner to the reader's eye. He became, in truth, a spiritualist on a wide and varied scale. He not only lived close to the divine spirit, and was thus a spiritualist in the highest sense, but he, like Swedenborg, 
was led into the invisible world, and in his Senen Os de Geisterwelt made revelations there and gave pictures there, which every real spiritualist at once recognizes as genuine. In this respect, he evidently inherited this faculty of open vision from his grandfather, the venerable old Eberhard Stilling. He describes a scene in which the old grandfather, his daughter Maria, and himself went into the forest to collect firewood. Arrived there, they sat a while by a beautiful spring, and after a while old Eberhard bade him remain there, and he would go and collect fallen wood. After a time he returned, looked cheerful and pleasant as if he had found something, smiled also occasionally, stood, shook his head, looked fixedly at one particular spot, folded his hands and smiled again. Maria and Heinrich looked at him with astonishment, yet they did not venture to ask him about it for he often did as though he laughed to himself. Stilling's heart was, however, too full. He sat down by them and related as follows, his eyes being full of tears. Maria and Heinrich saw it, and their tears already overflowed. On leaving you to go into the wood, I saw at a distance before me a light, just as when the sun rises in the morning. I was much surprised. What is that? thought I. The sun is already standing in the heavens. Is that a new sun? It must be something strange. I will go and see it. I went towards it. As I approached, there was before me a large plain, the extent of which I could not overlook. I had never seen anything so glorious in all my life. Such a fine perfume and such a cool air proceeded from it as I cannot express. The whole region was white with light. The day with the sun is night compared to it. There stood many thousand castles, one near another. Castles. I cannot describe them to you. They were as if made of silver. There were also gardens, bushes, and brooks. Oh, God, how beautiful. Not far from me stood a great and glorious mansion. Here the tears flowed abundantly down the good Stilling's cheeks, as well as those of Maria and Heinrich. Someone came towards me out of the door of this mansion, like a virgin. Ah, a glorious angel. When she was close to me, oh, God, I saw it in our dear departed Dora. All three now sobbed, and none of them could speak, except Heinrich who wept and exclaimed, Oh, my mother, my dear mother, she said to me, continued Stilling, with such a friendly manner, with the very look which formerly so often stole my heart. Father, yonder is our eternal habitation. You will soon come to us. I looked, but all was forest before me. The glorious vision had departed. Children, I shall die soon. How glad I am at the thought. Heinrich could not cease asking how his mother had looked, what she had on, and such like. All three pursued their labor during the day and spoke continually of this occurrence. But old Stilling was far from that time, like one who was in a strange land and not at home. The old man was right. The vision was shortly followed by his death. This event was also indicated to a neighbor by a sign, and she warned them of it. When he was grown up, Stilling, whilst walking one Sunday, felt himself suddenly seized by an unknown power, which penetrated his whole soul. He felt inwardly happy, but his whole body trembled, and he could scarcely keep himself from sinking to the ground. From that time he felt an invincible inclination to live and die entirely to the glory of God and the good of his fellow men. His love to God and man was intense. 
And on the spot, he made a firm and irrevocable covenant with God to resign himself henceforth to his guidance. This is what has been so often ridiculed as sudden conversion. But Stilling simply adds, this circumstance is a real truth. I leave it to men of genius, philosophers, and psychologists to make what they please of it. I am well aware of what it is that converts a man and so entirely changes him. As we have said, Stilling felt himself inwardly drawn to become a physician. Through the same inward impulse, he had betrothed himself to a pious but consumptive young woman whom he might find dead on his return from the university. But how to get there? For his course of study, a thousand rix dollars were necessary, and he did not know where in the whole world to raise a hundred. Neither his own friends nor his intended wives could help him. The worldly prudent would have pronounced the scheme insane, and have bade him stick to his needle and shears. But Stilling had a firm persuasion that he was divinely led, and he started for Strasbourg with a surgeon named Troost, who was going to refresh his knowledge by a new course of study. By the time they had reached and were about to quit Frankfurt, he had only one single rix dollar left. But there he met an acquaintance, whom he calls Liebman, who asked him where he got his money for his studies. He replied, from God, on which Liebman said, I am one of God's stewards, and handed him over thirty-three rix dollars. When these were spent at Strasbourg, Mr. Troost, who had traveled with him, said to him one day, Stilling, I believe you have no money. I will lend you six carolines, about five pounds, till your remittance comes. No sooner was that gone, and he was wondering where the next was to come from, when Liebman sent him three hundred rix dollars, from which sum he had paid Troost and got through the winter. In the following April, as he sat at study in his room, he was suddenly seized with a terrible panic and a desperate inclination to set off at once. He struggled against the feeling as a fit of hypochondria, but he could not get rid of it. The urgency to hasten home remained violently. Whilst in this condition, he received a letter informing him of the illness and apparently approaching end of his betrothed. This explained his dreadful presentiment, and he set off instantly. He found his betrothed, as it seemed, at the point of death, but she wonderfully recovered, and supplied with a fresh sum of money by his intended father-in-law, he returned to Strasbourg. By this time this gentleman was enabled to help him through, and thus he finished his course of studies, obtained his diploma, returned, married, and settled at Elberfield. He began his married and professional life with five rix dollars only. He had a hard fight for it. He was not much estimated in that manufacturing town, but at Strasbourg he had made the acquaintance of Goeth, Herder, and others of the rising lights of Germany. In one of his most difficult moments, Goeth sold his first part of the life of young Stilling for a hundred and fifteen rix dollars, which lifted him out of a sharp strait and at once made him famous. He was appointed professor of agriculture, technology, etc., at Richardsburg but he owed in Elberfeld 800 rix dollars and did not know how he should get away. But on taking leave of some of the chief merchants, several of them made him parting presents, and on counting them up, both he and his wife were astonished to find them exactly amount to the required 800 rix dollars, neither more nor less. 
After this, he was appointed professor at Marburg at the Economical Financial Sciences with a fixed salary of 1,200 rix dollars, not 200, but with a provision for his wife in case of his death. His debts, incurred through deficiency of salary in his earlier career as professor, pressed heavily upon him, for he had a considerable family. But he was sent for to perform operations for cataract in Switzerland, and he received there exactly the amount of all his debts, namely precisely 1,650 gulden. But the expenses of the journey were not provided for by this amount. These were 600 gulden and exactly this amount was paid him before he reached home. These instances may suffice. The whole of Stilling's life abounded in them. In fact, he defrayed at one time or other debts to the amount of many thousand gulden by the funds of Providence, his timely and unfailing supplies, as Goeth observed, fully justifying his reliance on that Providence. Well might Uz, lyric, poet, Van Spach, call him the man whom Providence so remarkably leads, and who so boldly confesses and courageously defends the religion of Jesus. Let us now notice some of the phases of Stilling's spiritual development. He became what is now termed a great writing medium. He not only wrote boldly in defense of Christianity, when infidelism from France inundated Germany, but he wrote under an influence which astonished himself. As George Fox would say, he was led and guided in his writing. Two of Stilling's most remarkable works are his Scenes in the Invisible World and his Nostalgia. He was merely proposing to himself to write imaginary scenes in the invisible world, as Lucian had done in the Mythologic Olympus, and in the Nostalgia to write an imitation of Tristram Shandy. But his pen was guided to write what astonished himself and the public. He wrote the scenes in the invisible world, wholly as if it were a work of imagination. Nor does he in that work or the nostalgia represent them as anything else. But when I read the scenes, I was instantly certain that these were not the product of imagination, but of spiritual dictation. No one who has known what that is could doubt this for a moment. These compositions bear all the marks and proofs of such writing. A physician can no more mistake the character of a disease from its diagnosis than a spiritualist can mistake the features of such writing. Turning then to the Liebengeschicht of Schilling, I was by no means surprised to read the following statements. The state of mind which Stilling experienced whilst laboring at his work, which consists of four large octable volumes, is utterly indescribable. His spirit was as if elevated into the ethereal regions. A feeling of serenity and peace pervaded him, and he enjoyed a felicity which words cannot express. When he began to work, ideas glistened past his soul, which animated him so much that he could scarcely write so rapidly as the flow of thought required. This was also the reason why the whole work took quite another form, and the composition quite another tendency, to that which he had proposed at the commencement. In his account of writing the Nostalgia, we have the explanation of the extraordinary scenery of both that, of the scenen, there was besides another singular phenomena, in the state between sleeping and waking, the most beautiful and, as it were, heavenly imagery presented itself to his inward sense. He attempted to delineate it, 
but found it impossible. With the imagery, there was always a feeling connected, compared with which all the joys of sense are as nothing. It was a blissful season. The state of mind lasted exactly as long as Stilling was engaged in writing the nostalgia. That is, from August 1793 to December 1794. Consequently, a full year and a quarter. The book was received with enthusiasm by the pious both at home and abroad. From all parts and ranks in Germany, it brought letters and made friends. It converted many skeptics and was welcomed in America, Asia, Denmark, Sweden, and Russia, as far as Astrakhan. But the widespread approbation of these works was not the most extraordinary thing. Stilling found that when he had supposed that he was writing fiction, even as it regarded this world, he had been writing actual facts. One morning, a handsome young man, evidently of distinction, and whom he says was the remarkable blank, but does not name, entered his apartment. This gentleman saluted him as his secret superior, kissing his hand and weeping, but Stilling replied that he was no man's secret superior, nor was in any secret connection whatever. The stranger was astonished, and could not credit this, saying, I thought you knew me already. But as Stilling positively denied any knowledge of what he meant, he asked him then how he had so accurately described the great and venerable connection in the East, and had so minutely pointed out their rendezvous in Egypt, in Mount Sinai, in the monastery of Canobin, and under the temple in Jerusalem. Stilling assured him that it was all fable and fiction, which he had merely written down as it presented itself to his imagination. Pardon me, replied the stranger. The matter is in truth and reality as you have described it. It cannot have come by chance. And he related to the equal astonishment of Stilling, the real particulars of the association. He soon heard from a certain great prince, asking him how he had learned the real particulars of the association as he had described them in the nostalgia. Stilling had been a spirit medium without knowing it. On other occasions, he became actually prophetic. The most remarkable instance of it was his announcing the tragic fate of Levator ten weeks and some days before it took place. Writing to Antistes Hess of Zurich on July 13, 1799, he told him that whilst writing, he felt a sudden and deep impression that Levator would die a bloody death, that of a martyr. He begged Hess to communicate this to Levator, which he understood was done. On October 14th, his son-in-law, Schwartz, came running to inform him that Levator had been shot at and severely wounded. Stilling cried out in horror and in astonishment at the fulfillment of the prediction. The manner of Levator's death was this. The revolutionary French under Massina had stormed Zurich, and Levator heard two of their soldiers making a disturbance at a house near his parsonage, inhabited by two females only. They were demanding bread and wine, and as they did not get it, Levator took them a bottle of wine and some bread. One of them, a grenadier, a Swiss by birth, of the canton de Faude, was particularly grateful and called him Bruder Herz, a dear fellow in German. Levator went back to his house, but at his own door was fiercely assaulted by another soldier and called out to ask the friendly soldier for protection against him. But now he was totally changed, answered him in a rage, and shot him. 
He'd probably learned from some people of Zurich that it was the celebrated Levator who boldly opposed French principles in government and still more in religion and who had addressed letters of protest both to the French director Rubel and to the directory itself, remonstrating against the infamous conduct of the French in Switzerland. He therefore instantly forgot his kindness and shot him as an enemy to the revolutionary and infidel principles of France. Thus, Levator died not only a bloody but a martyr's death, as Stilling had foretold. He did not, however, die at once, but lingered on in much agony till January 2nd, 1801, something more than a year. In Stilling's second volume of Scenes in the Invisible World, he unconsciously introduced facts as operations merely of the imagination, facts which had not yet come to his knowledge. Amongst them were these. In the glorification of Levator, a poem appended to the volume, he made Felix Hess and Fenninger two friends of Levator, in the form of angels, fetch Levator's spirit after his death to the New Jerusalem. About half a year after the publication of this poem, Bridenstine, the reformed preacher at Marburg, came to visit Stilling, and in conversation said, It is surprising how beautifully you have made use of the late Felix Hess's promise. How so? inquired Stilling. What promise? Bridenstine replied. Upwards of twenty years ago, Levator stood by the side of Felix Hess's dying bed, wept, and said, Now thou wilt not stand at my bedside when I die. Hess answered, But I will come and fetch thee. Stilling rejoined, Really, I never heard a word of it. It is, however, something strange. Where is it? I must read it myself. That you shall, said Bridenstine. It is indeed very strange. The next day he sent Levator's miscellaneous works, in which there is a short biography of Felix Hess. And this conversation appears just as Bridenstine related it. Stilling also introduced a still more dear friend of Levator's, Heinrich Hess, as bringing Levator to the Virgin Mary. And Mary relates to him the Lord's character, as exemplified in his earthly life. Long after Stilling reading the Jesus Messiahs of Levator, which he had never seen before, found to his astonishment that Levator consoled himself with the hope that, in his entrance into heaven, the Virgin Mary would relate to him the character which her son bore in his earthly life. These instances would be easily explained if we could suppose that Stilling had read these things and had forgotten the circumstance, though retaining the events, but we may rely on the assertion of Stilling that he had never seen those works or read those passages. Stilling's presentiments of evil were sometimes very strong, and as unerring as they were strong. Whilst on a journey to Göttingen Castle and other places in 1801, he was seized with a strange fear and melancholy, which eventually became so violent that he said to his wife, If the torment of the damned in hell is not greater than mine, it is still great enough. At length, the carriage in which they traveled was run away with at full speed by four spirited horses, was dashed to pieces, and Stilling left crushed and severely wounded on the place, a rib being fractured and his thigh injured. From this accident he suffered much in after years, but the moment it had taken place, his terror and mental agony were gone. The evil had come, and he was at peace. 
Besides Stilling's habit of living in direct communication with divine spirit, he believed in the active operation of numerous subordinate spirits in the concerns of men. He distinctly states this in his retrospect of his life. The first men were created by God in a state of perfection, but they sinned by disobedience against God, and by this means lost the equilibrium between the sensual and moral impulses. The sensual became more and more predominant, and therefore, with respect to all their posterity, the thoughts and imaginations of the heart of man are evil from his youth up, and that continually. Previous to this class of higher and more spiritual beings had fallen away from God and became evil. The prince of these beings had seduced the first man to disobedience. These evil spirits then can work upon the spiritual heart of man when he gives them the opportunity of doing so. But there are also good spirits which are about a man, and likewise influence him when circumstances require it. This is precisely the theory of Swedenborg. Stilling was of the opinion that men or women are not in a normal or indeed in a healthy state when they become cognizant by sight or sound of these spiritual beings and he held that it was not orderly or innocuous to encourage such intercourse. No doubt that intercourse which Stilling and all holy men have cultivated with the Divine Spirit, the Creator and Lord of all spirits, is the very highest and holiest, and they who enjoy that may well dispense with all other. But all men are not so highly developed as Stilling, and though by prayer they may enjoy the influence of the Divine Spirit, there are many souls to whom the ministry of subordinate spirits is helpful and beneficial. Their ministrations are more adapted to the condition of such souls, and their discovered presence may greatly strengthen their faith and raise them above the dark abyss of utter disbelief. The spirits of God are all ministering spirits sent to men of many different grades of mind and degrees of development and their ministrations are no doubt as various as the conditions of men. Communion with evil spirits, of course, is sorcery, pernicious, prohibited, and unblessed. In his pneumatology, Stilling has collected a great number of such manifestations, and he has given the narratives of some remarkable apparitions derived from persons well known to him, and in his estimation thoroughly trustworthy. Amongst those, one of the most curious is the story of the sack-bearer, Stilling received the account from an eyewitness, and one who, being in the haunted house, took most active and courageous means to learn all about the ghost from itself. Stilling says that he ascertained from other sources that the account was quite true. He does not tell us the name of the town where it occurred, a matter to be regretted, but a deficiency so often occurring from the oversensitiveness of the parties concerned. The narrator says that he went to work as a journeyman with a tradesman who lived in the upper part of an old house, which had been a monastery at Kupachins. On the ground floor lived a baker. At the time when Stilling received this account, he says the narrator was become a pious and intelligent citizen. It was in 1800 when he went to live with the master weaver in the old monastery. Hearing extraordinary noises in the attic, he inquired the cause and was told it was the sack-bearer, that is, an apparition bearing that name, from the fact that he continually seemed to let fall something on the upper floors like a heavy-filled sack, and made strange groans and noises as if in attempting to raise it again. On one occasion he had been met in his Kupachin dress by the baker below, 
bearing such a sack along the lobby before daybreak, which so horrified the baker that he ran off and let all his bread burn. The landlord, the weaver, had also seen him carrying the sack, and he informed the narrator that it was on account of this haunting that his grandfather bought the house very cheap. Learning this and being often awoke in the night by the sound of the falling sack, which seemed to shake the whole story of the house on which he lay, he was at great pains to get a sight of the apparition, and stole up to the upper room repeatedly when the spirit was letting the sack fall, one time after another with the greatest concussions. But it was only on one occasion that he caught a glimpse of him retreating into a corner. He rushed into that corner, but found nothing. On occasion of a person dying in the house, his noises were almost incessant. Stilling wrote to a friend of his at this time, a physician, who had learned from the proprietor that the sack-bearer still made his visits, and predicted to the inhabitants of the house events about to occur. By the latest intelligence which he obtained, it appeared that the spirit had learned to make himself understood, and was able to converse with the people who had ceased to fear him. It was supposed from some circumstances that the monk had committed some fraud in grain or other commodity with which he had been entrusted, and this was his penance. Another very remarkable case of apparition is related by him, which he introduces with this remark of such extensive application. This subject is generally treated as something superstitious and degrading. It belongs to good breeding and refinement, to smile at ghost stories, and to deny the truth of them. And yet it is curious that people are so fond of hearing them told, and that besides this, the incredulous narrator commonly seeks to make them as probable as possible. Everyone must have been struck with this fact. People will tell you a ghost story, premising, I don't believe a word of it, understand, and yet the incidents all occurred. And if you will proceed to throw discredit on the narrative, you will find that these incredulous people will grow indignant at the doubt cast upon their statement. So amusing is this popular characteristic, and so common, that a man of much repute writing to me the other day said, You may convict the world of belief in spiritualism by an overwhelming mass of evidence, but the world will not even then admit that it is convinced. The fact being that every human soul believes it in its soul, and simply because it is a soul, in its separable relationship to the world of souls, which will not let spirit, however incarnated, cease to feel the spirit world in which it lives. At Marburg, one of the students who attended Stilling's class, and whom he continued to know in afterlife as a most excellent man, brought him a printed account of a strange occurrence which happened to his father when a young man and to his grandfather. The latter had written down the whole narration and printed it for circulation only amongst his friends. It is very large, being given in complete detail with the conversation betwixt the grandfather and the spirit. The spirit described himself to have been one of their ancestors a hundred and twenty years before, and identified himself by their genealogical table. He appeared sometimes three or four times a day as a little man, dressed in a blue coat and brown waistcoat, with a whip hanging at his girdle and knocked audibly at the door before entering. He was extremely importunate that the sun should go out to a certain tree in a certain meadow, under which by digging he would find a deposit of money. This money seemed to have chained him to the spot all these years, during which he had not found a medium in the family to whom he could make himself apparent. But he appeared also to have a deed of blood on his soul, 
for he took down the son's Bible from a shelf, to which was attached a small hymn book, and pointed out with his finger the hymn beginning, Have mercy, gracious God, and the third verse of which had the words, From guilt of blood deliver me, etc. The Spirit continued its importunities from January 1st to April 30th, 1755. Neither father nor son would listen to him, considering him as a tempter, but this spirit denied and, to convince them, joined with them in singing hymns, calling on the name of Jesus, and declared that he was glad always to hear the word of God. He joined them in the reading of the scriptures, and on coming to the words in the eighth chapter of the epistle to the Romans, we are saved by hope, etc., he clapped his hands and exclaimed, oh yes, yes, saved by hope. He declared that he was going through a course of purification sent from God. Yet there were circumstances which made the father and son believe that he was far from this purification, for fire streamed from every finger when he became angry at the resistance to his wishes. Still more, when he touched the Bible, it smoked, and the marks of his thumb and finger shriveled up the leather binding where he held it, and also the paper where he pointed out the place in the hymn. From guilt of blood deliver me, was black and singed. The Bible with these marks is preserved in the family, and many credible persons have seen it, and may still see it. Still further, on one occasion, wishing the son to shake hands with him, he recommended him first to lay his handkerchief over his hand. This was done, and the handkerchief was found with the five fingers of a burnt hand in it, so that the first and middle fingers were in part burnt entirely through but the thumb and two other fingers were burnt black and singed. This handkerchief was sent round amongst friends and acquaintances, who assured Stilling of the truth of the whole. And then these singular relics were laid up for the inspection of all respectable visitors and for posterity. The whole account was signed and attested by the father and son, and the clerk of the peace, the imperial commissioner of liquidation, and the schoolmaster of place on May 16th, 1755. The fiery touch of the spirit, which induced the father and son to believe it a bad one, modern spiritualists can testify to belong to many spirits. How often have we seen fire streaming even from the finger of a medium? How often have spirits, before shaking hands with you, desired you at Mr. Holmes to lay your handkerchief over your hand first? How often have you felt the touch of spirit fingers prick as from the sparks of electricity? And Stilling soon came to understand this. He says, light, electricity, magnetism, galvanic matter, and ether appear to be all one and the same body under different modifications. This light or ether is the element which connects soul and body and the spiritual and material world together. In these words, Stilling, above half a century before Reichenbach's experiments in the audio force, announced that force as a modification of electricity, magnetism, etc., which Reichenbach confirms, the spirit eventually, notwithstanding its fire, was accompanied by another radiant little spirit, and finally appeared white and radiant itself, full of joy, announcing its deliverance from the probationary state knelt with the sun and uttered a beautiful prayer and thanksgiving to God, which Stilling gives, and then took his leave, saying that he would see him no more, which proved true. 
As regards the touch of spirits, it yet appears true that, according to their state, the sensation they occasion is more or less agreeable. Stilling says, When a departed spirit is tranquil in its mind, its touch is felt to be like the softness of a cool air, exactly as when the electric fluid is poured upon any part of the body. And how fully can this be confirmed by spiritualists? How frequently is the approach of spirits at seances? perceived by the cool atmosphere which precedes them. In fact, there is scarcely a characteristic of spirit with which Stilling does not show himself familiar. He notices the wonderful creative and representative power which all spirits possess, so that they can not only appear to us in the exact likeness and the exact costume of the earth life, but can project the most varied scenes at their will as we see a similar power exercised in dreams. I knew of a spirit, says Stilling, on whom the little brass buckles were perfectly cognizable. And in the case just stated, the spirit did not forget his horsewhip. Departed souls, he says, have a creative power, which during the present state, and in this rude and material world, can only be exercised with trouble and expense, and in a very imperfect manner. But after death, the will of the soul is really able to produce that which the imagination conceives. Stilling knew, too, the truth of spirit being present where it wishes to be. When the soul is separated from the body, it is wherever it thinks to be, for a space is only its mode of thinking. That does not exist except in its idea. Every doctrine which Swedenborg asserts of spirits is asserted by Stilling. The soul awakes from death immediately in Hades, and is drawn to good or evil spirits according to its own moral condition. If it be of the earth, earthy, it still hangs about the earth. Spirits need no language, their thoughts are all visible to each other, and hence the evil avoid the good spirits, because all their evil is visible to them. He asserts the doctrine of guardian angels. Every man has one or more guardian spirits about him. These are good angels, and perhaps the departed souls of pious men. Children are attended solely by good spirits, but as the individual gradually inclines to evil, evil spirits approach him. On the other hand, as he turns from evil to good, the good angels again draw near. And the more he inclines one way or the other, the more the wicked spirits enslave or the good ones strengthen him. The good angels never, however, forsake him, till he has become thoroughly hardened in sin. Materialists, Stilling says, have positively seen spirits, so that they were convinced that they were the souls of their deceased acquaintances, and yet they continued to doubt of their own immortality and self-consciousness. My God, what incredulity! The phenomena of rapping and knocking he frequently notices as modes of spirits announcing themselves. He was convinced of the soul possessing a spiritual body, a truth always asserted by Swedenborgians, and now universally admitted by spiritualists. Animal magnetism, he says, and an extensive medical experience have taught and incontrovertibly convinced me that the animated spirit, the divine spark in man, is inseparably united with an ethereal or luminous body. That this human soul, which is destined to be a citizen of the world of spirits, is, as it were, exiled into this earthly life and animal body to which it is fettered by means of the nerves and must be thus fettered to it for the purposes of its ennoblement and perfection. 
He was a defender of the sober sanity and truthfulness of Swedenborg, though he thought that he was in error in supposing that he entered the spiritual world by any other than the same means by which clairvoyants and mediums in general enter it. He maintained that it was by a species of magnetism that Swedenborg became conscious of the spiritual world, and he held that this phenomena resulted from something abnormal in the constitution of the person thus affected, amounting sometimes to a species of disease. He held that people ought not to seek such intercourse, and that it was prejudicial to the health of the persons so seeking it. Now in this there lies a certain truth. Whatever in any degree loosens the spirit from the bonds of the body, in the same degree admits it to the consciousness of the spiritual world. And therefore many persons, especially women of weakly constitutions or of a peculiarly nervous temperament, are found to be mediums, or as Reichenbach calls them, sensitives. Now there is no doubt but that much practice of mediumship is to such persons debilitating. The spirits which manifest themselves through them of necessity seize on their spiritual atmosphere as their means of coming into palpable contact with incarnated spirits, and thus draw from them a portion of their vital power. But this is not always the case, neither is it wrong to derive information in this manner. The proof of this is found in the result, which is good and therefore justified by the divine law. By their fruits ye shall know them. Whatever person becomes intelligent of inward things and of coming events is a medium, though he often does not know it. Stilling lived in a perpetual state of mediumship, and had his presentiments, his warnings, his visions and revelations, as of the death of Levator, and yet lived to a good old age. The highest form of spiritual agency is the direct one of the divine spirit. But God has surrounded us by his ministering spirits and acts greatly through them. Although we are told in the Old Testament that the Lord descended on Mount Sinai and delivered the law to Moses written by his own finger, we are told in the New Testament that even there it was by an angel which spoke to him in the Mount Sinai. Acts 7.38 And again, in words addressed to the Jews in the same chapter, verse 53, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. So that it is difficult for us to say where God speaks to us mediately or immediately. Stilling, having told us that such intercourse is wrong, goes on to give us abundant instances of the good effects of such mediumship. In fact, every case which he adduces of preternatural appearance of warning is for good and not for evil. He introduces Swedenborg, satisfying the spiritual doubts of the Queen of Sweden, or a merchant of Elberfeld, a friend of Stillings, and preventing a widow paying a sum twice over by bringing the information from her husband in the spiritual world of where the receipt would be found. Professor Bohm of Giesen is mysteriously drawn from a social circle to his own lodgings, where he is led to draw his bed from one side of the room to the other, and then returned to his company, wondering at the foolish thing he had done. But at midnight, the beam in the ceiling falls upon the place where the bed had stood, and the professor sees then the hand of God. Through his good angels, most probably, he cites the case of the father of Madame de Beaumont, who was going on a river party of pleasure at Rouen, 
and was prevented by the distress of a deaf and dumb aunt, and thus saved from drowning the fate of most of the party. The wife of a common mechanic, he tells us, had this spiritual gift, to whom spirits came to entreat for her prayers, and received much benefit from them. She could call a distant friend to her bedside when she was ill by this power. She consoled persons in distress by assuring them of the safety of their absent friends. She foretold the horrors of the French Revolution and saw Admiral Coligny in a bloody shirt. She saw Cagliostro and perceived that he had spiritual power but used it as a necromancer. Yet Stilling himself assures us that this Mrs. W. Blank was a pious and benevolent Christian and lived to the age of 63. And how happened it that she could be all this and yet be practicing what was wrong? She did it, he tells us, by incessant watch and prayer. Precisely so. It is the spirit in which spiritual intercourse is maintained that makes good or ill. Spiritualism is orderly or disorderly. In other words, good or bad. It is a divine gift which may, unfortunately, like all our other gifts, be by prayer sanctified by neglect of it, desecrated and demonized. There is a remarkable passage in The Shepherd of Hermas, a book written in the first century and then read in the Christian churches as canonical, which accords so exactly with the experience of myself and my family that I here recommend it to the especial attention of spiritualists. There is a lying prophet that destroys the minds of the servants of God, that is, of those that are doubtful, not those that fully trust in the Lord. Now those doubtful persons come to him as to a divine spirit, and inquire of him what shall befall them. And this lying prophet, having no power in him of the divine spirit, answers them according to their demands, and fills their souls with promises according to their desire. Howbeit that prophet is vain, and answers vain things to those who are themselves vain. And whatsoever is asked of him by vain men, he answers them vainly. Nevertheless, he speaketh something truly. Whosoever, therefore, are strong in the faith of the Lord and have put on the truth are not joined to such spirits, but depart from them. But they that are doubtful and often repenting, like the heathen, consult them and heap to themselves great sin, serving idols. For every spirit that is given from God needs not to be asked, but having the power of the divinity speaks all things of itself because he comes from above, from the power of the Spirit of God. But he that being asked speaks according to man's desires, and concerning many of the affairs of this present world, understands not the things which relate unto God. For these spirits are darkened through such affairs, and corrupted and broken. But they that have the fear of the Lord, and search out the truth concerning God, having all their thoughts towards the Lord, apprehend whatsoever is said to them and forthwith understand it, because they have the fear of the Lord in them. For where the Spirit of the Lord dwells, there is also much understanding added. Wherefore join myself unto the Lord, and thou shalt understand all things. There is a trying of the spirits. He showed me certain men sitting upon benches, and one man sitting in a chair. And he said unto me, Seest thou those that sit upon the benches? They are the faithful and he who sits in the chair is an earthly spirit. For he cometh not into the assembly of the faithful, but avoids it, and joins himself to the doubtful and empty, 
and prophecies unto them in corners and hidden places, and pleases them by speaking unto them according to all the desires of their hearts. Try the man who hath the Spirit of God, because the Spirit which is from above is humble and quiet, and departs from all the wickedness and from the vain desires of the present world. He makes himself more humble than all men, and answers to none when he is asked. For the Spirit of God doth not speak to a man when he will, but when God pleases. This has been our experience. Ask questions at seances, and you will have plenty of idle spirits rushing in to answer you according to your wishes. Wait in prayer for what may be given you from the Spirit of Truth, and you will have truth. For spiritualism is for spiritual truth, not for worldly affairs, which are the business of our natural faculties. The shepherd of Hermas therefore says of preaching, When therefore a man who hath the Spirit of God shall come into the church of the righteous, who have the faith of God, and they pray unto the Lord, then the holy angel of God fills that man with the blessed Spirit, and he speaks in the congregation as he is moved of God. We have now shown sufficient of young stilling, and refer the reader to pneumatology for many other extraordinary cases of spirit intervention. There have been few spiritualists in any age who more clearly understood the mysteries of spiritual economy, or who more faithfully and conspicuously obeyed its highest monitions, those coming from the divine spirit itself. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.